from the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University. I'm Michael Berkman. I'm Chris Beam. I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. This week, our guest is Peter Pomerantsev, who is making his second appearance on the show. He just completed two days worth of talks at Penn State and is also just back from Ukraine. And he really had a, a front row seat to what's happening there. And you know, we have talked on this show in in recent weeks, and it's been a, a broader media narrative that what's playing out in Ukraine is is really on some level a, a fight between authoritarianism and democracy. And Peter talks talks about that, both what's happening on the ground and this this bigger struggle or conflict that's at play. Yeah, right, Jenna, this, this uh, conflict, this war uh, between uh, Russia and Ukraine has been framed in a variety of ways, obviously. I mean, on the, on the one hand, you have Ukraine, Ukrainians are fighting for their lives, and Russians clearly underestimated the extent to which they would find the fortitude to do this. But, you know, taking a step back, it's also a very important conflict between uh, NATO and Russia and where NATO is going to, to draw its lines in effect and who's going who's gonna to come under the umbrella of protection from NATO. And as you uh, suggested in your uh, introduction, and I think Pomerantsev would be the first to agree with this, it's a conflict between authoritarianism and democracy. And that seems to be a conflict that is very important in this day and age. Well, he thinks it's it's pivotal, right? This is an historical moment. That's what Pom- Pomerantsev says. He he's arguing that there that authoritarianism, and this is an, actually an argument that you heard very a very similar argument that you heard in the twenties and thirties that the modern world just cannot sustain democracy anymore. Uh, that it's just too complicated, too interwoven. There's too much data out there, and democracy just is 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 not just inefficient it's set up for such insoluble conflict that it just can't solve people's problems and you see this reflected in 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 not just russia but also china and you've seen something similar maybe in in people in the united states who have you know supported russia and um, supported Putin. I mean, it's harder to do that now after, you know, overwhelming evidence of war crimes. But in terms of their dissatisfaction or their questioning of democracy, you see this all over the world. And so this is a moment where these two forces are are, um, at war. And how this gets adjudicated, how it's how it comes plays out is going to have an impact. After a period of clear democratic expansion around the world, following the Cold War and the development of new democracies, we're clearly in a period, and we've talked a lot about it on this show, there's a lot been written about it, of sort of democratic erosion, brought about, you know, to a large extent by the worldwide recession of 2008-2009 by all kinds of flows of uh, refugees around the world that have created all kinds of pressures on Western governments, but also just by the internal pressures of uh, internal tensions of democracy itself, which has really taken, uh, taken a toll on democratic discourse and ability of democracies to really deliberate and discuss uh, within themselves. 
the other thing is that social media has been uh, weaponized by by a number of politicians or political groups to to undermine people's sense that they can understand what's going on, that they that there is a an objective reality out there. But you also, I think, would have to admit or acknowledge that the liberal democratic order, the liberal democratic countries have united and come together far better than people would have expected, so far better than Putin would have expected. Right. Yes. I mean, it's it's actually quite remarkable the way, especially given the pressures that the West were under over the last four years when last under the Trump administration, where where the U.S. really abdicated a lot of its leadership of NATO and, and of the West more more generally. And I mean, I think that speaks to, to something that really makes this moment so frightening and interesting is the acceptance of many political elites now of various forms of authoritarianism around the world. I mean, I, I guess, I mean, the, the United States has a long tradition of white supremacy and mm-hmm. enforcing that in a variety of ways. So authoritarianism is nothing new here. Yet there is a lot of support among the American Republican Party for Putin mm-hmm. and a lot mm-hmm. of sympathy for Putin. And I, and I think there, there are two news stories over the last couple of weeks that I think really drive this home in some scary sort of ways. One is that CPAC, which is, you know, the major conservative conference every, every year in the United States, where major political leaders on the Republican Party in particular speak, is going to be held in Hungary, right. uh, which is an illiberal democracy. By, by <laughs> explicitly and is proud of it, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this whole sort of this uh, affection that many on the right seem to have for Orban. And, and you know, what accounts for it? I mean, I think Pomerantsev does, you know, a good job of kind of laying out what it is that, I mean, that what those common features think, are. Yeah, and, that, and that's the striking parallel between Russian propaganda and the kind of disinformation that we're seeing here. I mean, the Bannon strategy of just throwing out all kinds of BS is the same thing that basically Putin does. Right. So the other the other news story that I thought was important and interesting had to do was uh, the interview with Fiona Hill, where she talks about President Trump's clear hostility to Ukraine and affinity for and sympathies with Putin and the Russians. It should be made crystal clear to Americans that one party seems awfully comfortable with authoritarianism right now, with with, authori- with foreign authoritarians. Yeah, I think we should pick up this idea of how united can the United, how, how united can the liberal democratic order be when so many of these countries are internally riven by these same dynamics. But for now, I think that's a really good spot to bring in Jenna's interview of uh, Peter Pomerantsev. Peter Pomerantsev, welcome back to Democracy Works. Thanks for joining us. It's lovely to be back. So last time you were on the show was about a year ago. And at that time, we were talking about the idea of what does it look like to make a a, a democratic public sphere online, civic tech and, and those sorts of things. But the, the war in Ukraine was not on my radar. Maybe it was on yours. But I, I'm just wondering, I guess, to, to start us off here, 
how if there's a difference in, in how you think about this idea of democratic or undemocratic communication in times of war versus times of, of peace? Oh, that's a great, great question. You know, if we I suppose if we look at the theory of it, there's always been an acceptance, even in democracies, that in times of existential war, as if we're talking about Ukraine, it's been invaded. I mean, it's not like a, a war far away. It's it's at home. That obviously there's more oversight, more centralization, more censorship, more control. And and no doubt that's happening in Ukraine. I mean, all the ch- channels have been folded into one channel. There is definitely government oversight. And that's not unusual in, in a time of war. And, and it's a real choice that media face. I mean, the BBC in World War II, which definitely had government oversight. Let's not be overly romantic, but it, it was decided to give it a lot of independence and that it would report on British losses in World War II in order to maintain trust. So I think the Ukrainians are probably facing those choices. To what extent are they honest about their losses in order to maintain trust, but avoid demotivation and despair? So that's a very hard balance for any society that's at war to strike. But then, you know, there's the kind of outward communication that Ukraine has been doing, which I think has been a real contrast to Russia, while Russia has been sort of denying truth in an obviously aggressive way, saying there is no war. And I think there was even a quote saying, we didn't invade Ukraine from the foreign we never invade countries, their spokespeople. Mm. But I mean, like stuff that's really denying reality really is a way of, of sending a big middle finger up to, to anyone, just saying power is more important than reality. And then being very duplicitous when they do, when they do communicate things. You know, the Ukrainians have, have built everything around empathy and, you know, respecting their interlocutors and trying to engage them in a conversation, which is... Um, the way that's the democratic thing to do. It's also, I think, the clever thing to do. So it's been a real contrast in how you do external communication during a war. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think for people in, in, in America, certainly this is the first time that we've spent a lot of time thinking about Ukraine or really, you know, kind of hear, hearing about it. And the, the images that have been presented are of the, you know, people in the country kind of standing together as one, you know, Zelensky as this, this war leader. But I know that you your research looks at polarization in Ukraine. I, I, I'm just wondering about kind of the what's below the surface, if you could talk about some of the the uh, polarization that exists and and has existed in, in Ukraine. Sure. So, I mean, maybe a lot of it is familiar to Americans. I mean, in America, there are these divides between these categories known as North and South around the Civil War and, and civil rights. So, so in Russia, in, in Ukraine, it's traditionally been perceived as being around East versus West, with the East more nostalgic for the Soviet Union and softer on Russia, and the West less nostalgic for the Soviet Union and much more independent and anti-Russian. Those have, and, and, and that then sort of relates to sort of things like culture and language and stuff. So that's always been the cliche and that's always been something that's been pushed very hard by the Kremlin saying it's not a real country. To be honest, it's something that that, that, that is, I think actually been accentuated by a lot of political scientists in America. So someone like Huntington, who's a very famous political scientist, would say that Ukraine is a naturally divided country because they have slightly different they believe in slightly different types of orthodoxy in different bits of the country. So it's like, you know, slightly different types of of, of, of Christian orthodoxy. And, but whenever you actually start doing social research in Ukraine, which, which I and my 
research unit at Johns Hopkins have been doing extensively for the last what, four or five years, you find that these things are very super. That actually there's, there's a lot more that connects people. And, and I suppose if you, what connects them is, is a shared history of being violated by superpowers all around them. So Ukraine historically is someone that's sort of trapped between empires, between the Russian Empire and the Austro-Hungarian, between the kind of expansive nationalism of Poland and Hungary and Romania, and so on and so forth. There's a reason these things keep happening there, because sort of trapped in, in these borderlands between empires. And that has taught Ukrainians to live with, with this nonstop threat of greater powers. And, and there's this common sort of, there's this common thread of of resilience and horizontal connections that you use in order to survive assault. And that's coming through now. I mean, what's been remarkable in this war, it's a real all of society war. Everybody's chipping in. It's not just the army and the leadership. It's like, you know, the mid-ranking bureaucrat and the mayor. Mayors are having an amazing war, really sort of self-organizing. It's local business people, it's grannies throwing jars of pickle at Russian planes or drones and bringing them down. It's everyone. And that's a very Ukrainian response that's predicated on its history. There's nothing sort of like mystical about it. It's, it's really a result of having hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of facing up to oppressors and thinking how you survive that. Yeah. And the, and the, the war is, is also being framed, at least in, in American media anyway, as this sort of struggle between democracy and autocracy, you know, the West versus not West, for lack of a better term, I wonder, do do they see it that way? Yeah, I mean, to a great extent, yes, but but also more elementally about freedom and sovereignty. I think actually very interesting the way the way Ukraine, the Ukrainian story has, has resonated in America. It appeals both to the people who see this opposition between, you know, a clearly ethno-nationalist, racist, right, far-right dictatorship in Russia and a more liberal democratic Ukraine, but also conservatives here have been very enthused because it's a, it's a war of, of for national sovereignty and patriotism. So, so democracy is a very vague word. But Ukrainians know that they live in a pluralistic society and Russians don't. They know that in Ukraine, however messy and corrupt it is, they actually have some rights and they have a freedom to have agency. And they know that you don't have that in Russia. So, so yeah, I thought on a very base level about democracy, I don't think it's about institutions. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I don't know, parliamentary procedures or something, but but it's maybe the stuff that really informs democracy, sort of free and pluralistic society as opposed to one that is anything but that. Mm-hmm. And can you give us a sense of, of what the civil society infrastructure is like? So, so, so in Ukraine, trust towards we call, what we call civil society has always been very high. So what do we mean by that? Sort of activists, activists during the war in 14 sort of fed and clothed the army. We mean business associations. So it's a country that has, which has a middle class and kind of has small business sort of associations and communities. Churches, very, very popular, especially in bits of the West of Ukraine. But also, look, if we're going to be, civil society isn't always fluffy stuff. I'd throw mafia in there. <laughs> gangsters, like petty gangsters. That's a big thing. People trust the local petty gangster. I'd throw in a kind of, Football supporters and football hooligans, those are very, very strong groups in Ukraine. Again, civil society isn't always pretty. I'd throw in the far-right militias that we have heard about, which are tiny in terms of percentage of the vote and, and sm- a small, very small amount of people in the army. It's like a thousand people. But, but the, you know, they're quite, they're, they do have some sort of profile. But again, very much a case of people self-organizing in ways we don't necessarily like. Civil society doesn't necessarily have to be 
fluffy civil society. But the Ukrainian instinct is towards that. And that is in and of itself a democratic instinct. So, so, so you know, even their gangsters are quite democratic. <laughs> but, you know, it's, they don't form these huge hierarchies. Well, they do in the very east, but they don't. They don't generally. Um, so, so it's it's a pluralistic society that relies on these horizontal networks, really, because you never trusted the state. The state was always an aggressor, and and that's been passed down. That's a curse in many ways. It makes it very hard to build strong straight state institutions. But that's what we're seeing throughout the country at the moment. This incredible. I mean, obviously, the army is doing an amazing job, and there are ministries like the Ministry of Infrastructure, which is keeping the trains going, which is amazing. And that's clearly centrally coordinated. But even there, there'll be somebody on the ground making a quick decision to make sure everything's moving. It's, it's a country where people have a lot of agency. And again, it's an all-of-society effort. I think journalists are twigging onto that. It's not just about Zelensky and his bunker. It's an all-of-society effort. It's happening at, at everything, at, at every level. And you see it everywhere in Ukraine. Um, from this amazing story that there about this beautician in Mariupol who organized like as an escape route for, for, for people from the siege. She's a beautician. She just used her smarts. And so, of course, that was what was completely missing from the Kremlin's interpretation of what would happen when they invaded. The Kremlin thought it has weak, weak faith in institutions. So, therefore, it will... Um, so therefore it will collapse but what they completely didn't understand that it had these very strong horizontal bonds basically yeah I mean where was that that blind spot for, for Putin and, and for the, the Kremlin they should have just been reading our polling I mean like like our, our, our polling and focus groups were showing this over and over and over again we also worked with journalists and we could see when journalists made films about this like little history documentaries about how Ukrainian civil society cooperated in the second world war people loved it and people loved it across the country so, like, it's part of the self-identity, like, proud of it. This is, like, this is how we do things. That's, like, the Ukrainian way of doing things. So, so yeah, the, I mean, one of the great pieces of analysis to do for historians going forward, but it's already leaking out, is just how bad the internal polling was that the Kremlin did before this invasion. I mean, it's not the first time. I'm thinking about America invading Iraq and the whole world saying, no, no, like, it's you're, you're going to launch chaos there because actually the social contract in Iraq is very thin. And they're like, no, everybody will love us and they'll create a new state. And like everyone who knew the region was like, that is not what's going to happen. You're about to open this kind of like viper's nest of ethnic and social hatred. And so like, you know, well, what can I say? You know, sociologists are important. <laughs> Cultural anthropologists are even more important. But just read the literature. I don't know. It's all in the books. You know? Right. Like just do stuff. Military analysts really need to sort of like do a lot more research outside their very narrow field of moving tanks. Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and I host the Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other podcast. You can find us at politicsandreligion.us. That's politicsandreligion.us. We are your home for edifying, provocative, and fun discussions among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me. We talk about faith and politics and all kinds of topics that really matter in our culture. So if you're tired of screamers and extremists dominating the conversation and you want to join us and take some of that space back, if you want to better understand different points of view, if you appreciate some nuance and just having a little fun, you'll love talking politics and religion without killing each other. And remember, we're real easy to find. It's politicsandreligion.us. Hope to see you soon. 
We'd love to have you join the conversation on talking politics and religion without killing each other. So the other thing that you you have written about in your arena research is this idea of of national remembrance, which I gather is is something that has has been happening in in Ukraine. It's something that we are we in America are are really bad at that. When it, you know everything from you know civil rights or the kind of the the legacy of of slavery and and all, on and on and on. I wonder if you could talk about public memory in in Ukraine, what what has happened there and and maybe any lessons that that America or or, or other parts of the world could could take from what's what's happened there? Sure. Well, actually, the research that we did in Ukraine, the methodology we're now applying to an American project. Uh, So that is literally what we're doing. This is something that myself at Hopkins and then our partners at Millions of Conversations, which is an organization in Tennessee. Uh, that looks at overcoming polarization and more in common, which is a sociological institution that looks at what Americans have in common. So we're going to be doing that. We're going to be taking our methodology in Ukraine, where we really looked at essentially what, what, what unites people beneath some of these divisive narratives. And also, like, are the divisive narratives, let's say in Ukraine, that can be about the Second World War and whose side were your grandparents on in it? Is there actually ways of probing those issues, which is would still get at the facts, but isn't necessarily as divisive in the way it's being presented. So, yeah, so we've been doing that. We're going to be doing, we're just starting that in the US. Mm-hmm. We're just at the point of designing the surveys. But my instincts say that, and having talked to sort of people in the so-called South, and I keep on saying the so-called South because I actually think that the, the categories North and South might be unhelpful. Talking to people in Mississippi, they're like, they weren't, you know, you know, take something like pulling down Robert E. Lee statues, so there's this vociferous, you know, I don't know, probably pro-segregationist bit of society that campaign in front of the Robert Ely statues, but and they get all the attention. That doesn't necessarily reflect the maybe much more nuanced opinions that people in Mississippi have. And I'm talking to I was talking to high school teachers there, and they're like, it's much more complicated. People do get that you know, it's a pretty bad history. It could be some of the way. Maybe sometimes people feel that people in the North don't talk about their own history of slavery and kind of push all the blame onto the South. I mean, it gets very, very complicated. And you've got to get into those complications and and those sort of perspectives to get, you know, to, 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 to find a way to talk about the really difficult. That's what we found, basically. We found that in Eastern Ukraine, people who we thought of just Soviet nostalgics, They were nostalgic for a bit of the Soviet Union, but they didn't like the human rights abuses. They didn't like the censorship, et cetera, et cetera. So so I think we just have to learn to listen to each other a bit better. And obviously there are vicious, nasty extremists and fascists, but the idea is to really isolate them and, and see who else you can bring into a much more kind of truthful and honest conversation about history. I mean, it's not about avoiding the past. It's not about sort of like the sort of like happy clappy like oh let's focus on what unites us it's not it's how do we talk about the difficult stuff but in ways that integrates as many people as possible we we recently had on the show your hopkins colleague liliana mason who has done a lot of work about the the relationship between political disagreement and political identity and now in her most recent book political violence and how that fits in here so when when you were talking before about you know having you know 
working with with millions of conversations and trying to understand that these differences might not be as as big as we think on on, on policy. How do you think about political identity mm-hmm. in that picture? And I'm glad you raised that because that gets us into the into the key word here, identity, which we throw around a lot and very unthinkingly. I'd actually not take a sociological point of view the way Liliana does or a political science. I'd take a psychoanalytical one. What do we mean by identity? What are the different types of modeling identity? And a psychoanalyst will tell you, because I I asked them, (laughs) that identity is a very problematic idea. As a child grows up, if they can't deal with the world, if something traumatic happens as they grow up, and I'm simplifying viciously, they can't deal with the reality of others, that the world doesn't revolve around themselves, they don't get enough attention, they don't actually get into a dialogue and as a child, a kind of an emotional dialogue, they will adopt this very, very paranoid identity, which ex- expels out of themselves any difference within themselves and sees itself at odds with a confrontational world. All infants are conspiracy theorists who think that something is taking the mother's breast away. So what a psychoanalyst tries to do is try to get you beyond identity to what they call identification, seeing the complexity of the relationships that you're existing, moving away from this paranoid definition of us and them. That's what I'm talking about. When our, pro- when our news media defines people over and over and over again as liberals versus conservatives, even though the sociology says that's not actually how people see, like, understand the world in a, in a, in a very personal way, we're reinforcing these tribal identities. So what I'm talking about is creating the conditions where dialogue can happen and where discourse can happen. And I'm definitely talking about smoothing differences. I'm talking about being in a place where you can talk about them and creating the conditions. When I think about media. How do you do debates differently? How do you do news media differently? How do you do TV shows differently? Where that, can, that paranoid identity smooths and where in a position to recognize the humanity of others, and then we can work towards solutions. So difference is the essence of democracy. Democracy is meant to be antagonistic, and we debate, and we push back, but at some level we see there's something, a common humanity that we can relate to just about. So I'm talking about models of identity, and I think we throw around this world identity very, very carelessly and make a lot of assumptions behind it, which are very negative ones. But let me give you another example, Europe, because I'm, I'm from Europe, um, in a very practical way, I spent several years at something called the European Schools, which were special schools designed by the founders of the European Union to get over the problems of tribal European identity, which you think you guys have got a bad here. We had like several world wars around this, okay? <laughs> I know you guys had a civil war. Believe me, ours was worse. So the, what was the idea of the European Schools? I think it was all about not erasing different identities, but having a different idea of what identity is. So what we would do, we had these different language sections. I was in the English one, there was a French one, a German one. And these schools were all about you preserving where you came from. You know, you did your classes for most subjects in your language with the view that you would go back to your home country to go to university there. It wasn't around creating a supra kumbaya sort of like, hey, we're all European. No, no, it was all about I am English, preserving the language, preserving the culture, preserving the the ideas, but you would do history and geography in a foreign language from a foreign point of view. So not only was everybody bi or usually trilingual, you learned to see things from a different place. It's very shocking for me because I'd grown up with an idea of Napoleon, that Napoleon was a really bad guy because that's how we're taught it in England. 
And I spent a year learning it from the French point of view, going, oh, well, Napoleon, interesting, nuanced. And look, that's just a tiny example, but it gets you to see things from another point of view. I didn't become pro-French or French in any meaning of the word at all. What I did, though, was start to understand, have more space in my identity and the ability to sort of dance around it. And maybe the ability to wear identity with a slightly lighter skin, which I think you can do if if you're not existentially under threat. I mean, if there's a war, you know, you take up arms and fight. I'm just talking about in these kind of peacetime things, saying, yes, this is my identity in my case. I'm English, I'm all these things, but I can actually see it from the other point person's point of view. And I'm, I don't feel kind of clingy about my identity. Now, again, if you're a minority, if you're oppressed, then you should be clinging to your identity. I'm not in any way saying you should erase your identity from a position of weakness. Because if you're under attack, you fight back. And actually, I think you can even do so violently sometimes. But as Ukraine is. But I'm talking about in a, in a, in a democracy where, you know, there's a rule of law and, and people's sort of like rights should be guaranteed. So that's that. And, and we can do a lot of as media. I think actually that's the mission of public service media to facilitate that and help that. And, and the way, sadly, media in America is constructed at the moment is, is, is through the opposite of that. It's the kind of like, you're a CNN viewer, you're an MSNBC viewer, this is what you do. And it was quite upsetting. I was watching a sort of a nice MSNBC show the other day, and it was just like the whole show was just beating up on some Republican senators. And those Republican senators really deserve to be beaten up on. But it's clear that the model was like, here is your identity. We hate those guys. Feel good about yourself. Which is like, okay, can we, get, can we get beyond this now? And our debates are structured this way. Our TV shows are structured the way. The financial incentives of newspapers are structured this way. That's not great. That's not great. So we need a different ecology for our public sphere where, where we can learn how to talk to each other. And also, we have lots of identities. I mean, I suppose that's what the psychoanalyst would, the psychoanalyst would say. You have an identity as a, you know, I remember seeing some research about this, this was American research. When people were introduced to each other as Republicans and Democrats, they clashed. The moment they were introduced to each other as like, your two mothers or your two mm-hmm. doctors, they could, they could find a common language. And again, we'll disagree. That's fine. That's good, I'd say, actually. But, but at least we're locked into a discourse, a dialogue. And enough trust where, like, if the other ones lose and win an election, you don't have a nervous breakdown. Right. I mean, that's not healthy. The sort of every election in America is like, it's the end of the world if the other side wins. Like, it's elections. They win. You win. It's democracy. Stuff develops. I mean, this sort of sense that it's the end of the world with every election that you have on both sides is a deeply unhelpful and, you know, worldview, I think. Oh, right. And you and on, on election night, what do you see? A, a map that has red states and blue states. Yeah, that's yeah. fun. Come on. That's fun. I don't want to lose that. I'm not saying I'm not saying make boring TV. That's yeah. good TV. Yeah. Elections are competitive. I mean, there are like sports. I know. I want my map. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I mean, so on this on this point of incentives, though, that that gets to this this question that you you were talking about earlier today in your, in your time on campus of, you know, whose whose job is it to say, no, we want something different. And I, I, you know, given given all of the, you know, financial uh, implications, I think that's sort of like everybody's kind of looking around at each other, as, as you said, saying, is it your job? Is it my job? Uh, I mean, do you do you have thoughts about where where this this larger scale process change might start, particularly with national media? I know there are examples uh, on a on a local level. I think this is easier to maybe build out and to to get funding for and, and all those sorts of things. But 
you know, where where does that ball start rolling nationally? Yeah, it's bad. It's bad. I don't know. I've only been here six months. I don't <laughs> understand. Because the foundations that I talk to think their theory of change is very micro. Let a thousand seeds mm-hmm. bloom. Like, this is a national crisis. That's not enough. I think we need, historically, we've had interventions in Britain. The BBC was created partly to solve this problem in the 1920s when you had very bad polarization in Britain. We need big interventions. I suspect in America, it definitely won't be like expansion of public media. It's just never going to happen here because of polarization. <laughs> so I think the local media thing is a start. I think maybe civic tech design, designing spaces where people can interact. I think that might be easier here. My dream is a kind of an armada of, of Tocquevillian civic media who are both local, but also can be thematic. To kind of bring together all of these things that, that we've we've been talking about, how should democracies respond and how should people in democracies respond? So it's not just this war. I wouldn't. So I'd say this current moment of invasion of Ukraine is part of a much longer campaign that Putin has been waging in Syria, you know, in the information and political space and his attacks on the American elections and others. So uh, this isn't this isn't just this is, didn't start five weeks ago. This has been going on really since. I don't know, since for, for almost a decade now. So it's part of a much longer campaign to, you know, Russia obviously says it, you know, they say it very openly to, to remake the world order so that it shifts towards countries like them. And and obviously China and, and, and Saudi Arabia and and quite a few others are, are part of the sort of cabal. And there's a lot of countries sitting on the fence waiting to see which way this swings. So what it means essentially is us as societies understanding that, that it, it is a conflict. And that means we're going to have to sacrifice some things. So... We need an oil and gas embargo in Russia. That will be hard for countries like Germany. It might well push them into really high inflation. I don't understand the point of the EU and its stabilization funds if it's not to deal with this. I mean, it's like this is why the EU was created as kind of a bulwark against the, the, the repeat return of tyranny. Well, here it is. And that's why we have these like huge stabilization funds in it. So if this isn't the time to use it, I don't, I actually don't understand the point of it anymore. So, but that means societally saying, oh, it's not just the fluffy Ukrainian hobbits against evil Sauron Putin. It's like, no, 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 this is a front in a much larger conflict and, and one that's going to define the 21st century. So it means being recognizing that. That means being prepared for some level of sacrifice. That also means thinking very seriously about military might and how that plays into the conflict. And I'm not saying we should do anything rash. But at the end of the day, we have to think very, very clearly about how the other side will keep on escalating and they will keep on raising the stakes. They'll keep on putting pressure. They'll keep on testing after Ukraine, Moldova, Georgia, maybe NATO. This isn't going away. They're in it. They're in it. They see this as systemic. And... I think there's almost a desire to sort of keep this over there. Mm-hmm. Let the Ukrainian will we'll give Ukrainians some low-level weapons. Just go over there and make us think about this as little as we possibly can. And that's not going to be enough. The longer this war drags out, the more emboldened Putin will become. If he then goes on to defeat Ukraine, he certainly won't stop there. So. I think we have to lose some of our... We have to really think about what we mean by escalation. Is it actually more escalatory if we let Putin win? Which kind of we are at the moment. 
I mean, we're, we're, we're raising the costs of the win, but we're, we're essentially saying, oh, he's going to win anyway. Let's make it harder for him. But the default idea has always been in DC that he's going to win. That might be changing now because he's, his army's a mess, but that's always been the default position. I think we have to think very seriously about this word escalation, which has become the, the main word in DC that, that is repeated over and over and over again. And what is actually true escalation? Is letting Putin win, which is currently, I fear, is the default mindset, is that actually much more escalatory than ensuring that he doesn't win? Yes, that, that is that is a very important point, Peter. Uh, you know, I, I am continually impressed that you can that you do all of these things and can can talk about them so eloquently and you know make make those connections and, and help us make those connections at home and abroad. So Peter, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. So yeah, you definitely got the sense from Peter that he sees this as a the, the war in Ukraine as being a, a fundamental struggle between uh, a future that um, embraces democracy or, or one that is, you know, is authoritarian. And, you know, I mean, I think he would also agree that the West has responded with, with a pretty unified voice. However, you know, it's also the case, I think, that, you know, we have governments who are responding in you know, fairly unified, fairly strong ways to to this invasion and to Russian war crimes, et cetera. But within just about every one of these countries, you have, you know, some kind of manifestation of that same authoritarian democratic split within the countries, right? You, you know, we just saw in France that, you know, um, the, the Le Pen got... 23% of the vote and made the cutoff, right? A far right party. And and in United States, you see a, you know, I mean, you see these people interviewed who say, I would much prefer Putin to be my president than Joe Biden. And yeah. so I just wonder how sustainable this, uh, this unified front is. Yeah, well, to me, it just points to the importance of institutional design and structures. I mean, France is very different from us. So, sure. So in the United States, where authoritarianism is still a minority position, it can wield an enormous amount of political power because ours is a political system built to really to uh, retard majoritarian control mm -hmm. and to enhance the power of strategically placed minorities so right. through the courts, through the Senate, through things like that. In France, you know, it is disturbing the runoff between with Le Pen on the other Macron and, and Le Pen. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, Le Pen lost votes for right. the time, as I understand it. And uh, because they do have a majority based system, she's not going to gain political power. Well, uh, it's not nearly the same kind of threat as it is here, where actually, you know, Trump was able to become president without winning anywhere close to a majority of the majority. Vote. And, you know, if he's going to be the candidate and run and win again in 2024, and uh, he very possibly could pull that same that same kind of thing. And so it, to me, it really just emphasizes the importance of institutional structures, because I suspect this kind of split within populations you're going to find just about anywhere. I, I wish I agreed with you, 
but I don't. And here's why. I think, you know, ultimately, there are going to be serious economic costs associated with the West response to this Russian invasion. And the the better those responses are, the more uh, powerful they are in terms of impacting Russian behavior, the stronger those impacts will be, right? And that's certainly true in, in Germany and France, who get so much of their oil from, from Russia. That goes for India, too. But even here, I, my strong suspicion is there are a sizable percentage of Americans who are just not willing to um, accept the price of gas now, who don't see this as resulting from Putin, and they certainly aren't going to tolerate it getting worse. Throughout our, our, you know, the way that the American economy has developed, the way the American political system has developed, has been to create a reliance on the automobile, right? So we didn't build the mass transit systems. We didn't build the train systems. Instead, we built an interstate highway system and we built suburbs. And so it's it's a little tough to tell people now whose livelihood depends on driving 40 minutes to mm-hmm. get to work that they should just be prepared to pay more to help the cause of democracy because we've built everything to make it impossible for them to have any other option. Any there's option. no other way to get to work. And so while I think gas is too cheap as it is, and I always thought it was better in the European model where it's always more expensive, but they also provided other ways mm-hmm. – people to manage. So I, I don't know. I, I don't know how tough we can be on people for saying they should be prepared to support the price of gas in order to promote democracy. This can have, you know, many more very bad effects coming down the future, as can, you know, <laughs> as will these flows of refugees that are leaving mm-hmm. Ukraine and, and moving into other places. And as we've already seen before from, from massive flows of, of refugees. So it's a uh, yeah, it's a it's a very volatile situation, and, and we'll be going forward. It, it's remarkable how much the West and NATO has held together to this point. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, you're could, could not have been Russia's aim to unite NATO. Absolutely not. No, I mean, in, and in some ways that demonstrates that you know um, there are some objectives that he simply is not going, cannot, and will not achieve with this war, no matter what happens. No, but he'll get the east of Ukraine, and, uh, and maybe that Ukraine, maybe that will be enough. As I understand, that's where most of the energy resources are. I mean, I, I think that they're going to we're, we're we're in for we're in for a very difficult time. I think that's basically where I come down to. I mean, and I think you're absolutely right that if we were if we were in a less polarized time, this would be a really good time to make an argument that, listen, we do not want to be beholden to dictators and authoritarians, whether they be in Russia or in Saudi Arabia or wherever. And so we should be developing alternative sources and we should be developing mass transit. But even if we had complete agreement, which is absolutely not in the cards, that's that's a long-term proposition, as is just about anything else. I mean, the only thing short-term we can do is what Biden is doing, which is... Re- 
letting out oil from the from the reserves, but that's not going to be enough. And so I think short term, yeah, there's going to be significant burdens on Americans and, and Europeans, and there's going to be a sizable minority with, within all those populations that don't accept it. And, and so how you sustain this commitment on the part of liberal democracies is, is going to be very difficult. Mm-hmm. All the more reason to take seriously the, the point of view of um, Peter Pomerantsev. So, to be continued, obviously. For Democracy Works, I'm Chris Beam. I'm Michael Berkman. Thanks for listening. 